Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. We're going to be diving back into our current sermon series, This I Believe. If you haven't been with us over the past few weeks, we've been going through some of the major statements in our doctrinal uh, statement of faith. And so today we're continuing through and we're talking about salvation. Now, I do have to give you a little bit of a disclaimer before we start this morning. I don't know how many scriptures I'm going to go through, but it's a lot. I do not expect you to keep up with the screen, so I'm just letting you know that I'll be flashing verses up on the screen. I may read them in the entirety. I may just give you the gist of them as we, we go along. I'm more than happy to send you my slides and references. If you just want to send me an email, you can go back and uh, slow down the YouTube video. Uh, also as well, hello to all of you watching at home. But uh, before we dive in, why don't we go to the uh, Lord with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we're thankful that we come together to worship you as a church family. Lord, I pray that this morning we would be attentive to your word, that we would be listening for your voice this morning through this message, that we would not only learn something new today, but it would trans- truly transform us and change the way we live our lives. Lord, be with us as we open up your word together, we pray in your name. Amen. So I'm not much of a history guy, but uh, this past week I read an interesting story uh, from World War II. It was all about an operation called Operation Dynamo. Hundreds of thousands of Allied soldiers were cut off. They were surrounded by German troops during the Battle of France. And so when this news got to Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, when he learned of this pretty tragic situation, he called it a colossal military disaster, saying the whole root and core and brain of the British army had been stranded at Dunkirk and seemed about to be perish or to be captured. But what happened next was nothing short of remarkable. At the time, they figured they could evacuate maybe around 17,000 of the three over 300,000 soldiers that were stuck and surrounded by the Germans. But a call went out and more than 700 private boats, maybe as many as 850, would be later known as little ships. This was just a ragtag group of yachts. Uh, speed boats, motor boats, ferries, fishing vessels. More than 700 of them joined 220 warships and they went to the rescue. They left the south of England, they went across the channel, and they were able over the course of nine days to rescue more than 331,000 stranded soldiers. The operation soon became known as the Miracle of Dunkirk. And then in a later speech, Winston Churchill described their rescue as a miracle of deliverance. See, when we speak of being saved, this is the type of picture that comes to my mind. To be rescued from a certain impending danger. When we take that language and we bring it into the church, we speak of salvation in terms of being rescued from death to life. And so in order to explain the meaning of salvation, what we typically do is actually explain it in terms of a story, which we call the gospel. 
In other words, the gospel is the story of salvation. And it's the key to really be able to truly understand the significance of the gospel, of salvation, and then it helps us relate this idea and concept to others. So this morning, what I want to do is simply walk you through the gospel story with a specific focus on helping us see how it paints this picture of salvation. Now, this series really has been about walking through theological concepts. And some of you check out when you hear that word, theological concepts. It's not meant to be an academic lecture. But as a church, I think we do have to have a collective understanding of what we mean when we talk about certain words and concepts, especially when it relates to our theology. And I don't think this is any truer of any other word than salvation. Not only because our souls depend on it, but it's also the one message that we have been commissioned to share with the world around us. And so if there's any doctrine or any word that we should all have a deep understanding of, it's that word, salvation. So I want to dig in this morning, see how this relates specifically to our understanding of salvation and then hear the story of the gospel. And so as we open up this story, we first come to the prologue. It opens with the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It continues. It goes on to describe God's good creation in Genesis 1 and 2. It highlights the creation of man, how they enjoyed fellowship with God as they walked in the garden. This is a picture of perfection. But as we come to the end of the prologue, we open to chapter 1 and we're presented with a pretty dramatic problem. Chapter 1 is titled... We are desperate. We see God's good creation now stained by sin. As Adam and Eve partake of the forbidden fruit. And then God being perfectly holy brings consequences to Adam and Eve for their disobedience. Pain is introduced into childbearing. The harmony between men and women is strained. The ground is cursed, and death is introduced into creation. This narrative is already bleak, but then it gets worse, because the author takes us over to Romans chapter 5. And there we see that we all suffer the consequences of Adam's fall. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so this is where our doctrinal statement here at the chapel begins in regards to salvation. It says, The fall of man into sin has resulted in his separation from God. We're reminded of Romans 6.26 that the wages of sin is death. And some right here may be tempted to close the story, to push it away, to say this doesn't make any sense. I object. 
Why should I be held responsible for Adam's sin? But what we also know as we continue reading through this chapter is that Romans 3.23 not just speaks of Adam's sin, but it speaks truth about you and me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you turn back a couple pages in Romans chapter 1, we also see that although God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We find that all of creation and all of humanity isn't just being blamed for Adam's sin, but we all hold sin in our hearts. We are all held accountable to our Creator because He has revealed Himself and made Himself known. You see, this sin in us has made us enemies of God. We're deserving of His judgment and wrath. Our desperate condition is highlighted throughout the Bible, first by the prophets in the Old Testament, and then it's confirmed in the New. Jeremiah says, Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God, says Nahum. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And there you might be saying, but wait a minute, I'm not wicked, I'm not an enemy, I'm not an adversary of God. And yes, you are. If you are human, if you are in sin, apart from him, you are his enemy. And you will see this certain wrath. The New Testament continues, Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You go all the way to the end of New Testament, and you see this picture of Jesus bringing down judgment against his enemies. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And what Scripture does is makes it abundantly clear that apart from God, we are hopelessly and desperately lost. This is evidenced not just by Scripture itself, but we can also see it clearly just through our own human experience. Look at the world around us. It's broken. It's scarred. It's hurting. It's full of pain. We see the evidence of Romans 1 all around us that humanity in a large way has suppressed and rejected God. They've become futile in their thinking. Their hearts have become darkened. Our world has increasingly given itself over to idols, opened itself up to all sorts of self-indulgence, unrestrained sexuality. We see how many have been given up, as Romans 1 tells us, to debased Minds. You keep reading through Romans chapter 1 and you see that all manner of unrighteousness surrounds us. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, 
murderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is the picture of a society and a people who are against God. And the result of these disastrous consequences of sin is spelled out clearly at the end of the chapter. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They deserve to die. And so while I know that, well, at least I would like to think that this sin only applies to the outside world, we must remember it's the same root of sin that has infected all of humanity. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that all we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. You see, we are desperate, not because the world around us is corrupt, but because of the sin inside our own hearts. Our sin, our rebellion against the Creator, our failures, our secret sins, our willful disobedience. And you see, I feel like there's a tendency within the church to minimize our own sins. Because we can look at the outside world and and feel kind of good about who we are. But we can never forget that apart from God, we are desperately Lost. Chapter 1 comes to a close with a sobering realization that there is nothing we can do within ourselves to fix our standing before God. We stand condemned. And if we were to face God and have to give an account for our sin, we would surely be found guilty and deserving of his justice and wrath and judgment. But thankfully, that's only the end of chapter 1. We turn the page to find the glorious truth of chapter 2. We are loved. The author of the story brings us back to that creation account in Genesis chapter 3 where we saw the curse of sin applied to mankind, but this time we are pointed to the curse applied to the serpent. Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this curse, The serpent is not only condemned physically, but there is also a glimmer of a promise. The first mention of the gospel hope that is embedded right here within this verse. This verse tells us that the man and serpent will be in a cosmic struggle. And although the serpent will nip at the man's heel and wound him, that the seed of the woman speaking of Jesus in the future will crush the serpent's head, achieving ultimate victory. And so you might be wondering, well, how? How will God orchestrate these events? How does this promise come to pass? And if we go all the way to Philippians chapter 2, we see it's through the sending of His only Son, Jesus. 
Have this mind among yourselves, says Paul, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This passage teaches us is that Jesus became human on our behalf with a specific mission to accomplish our redemption through his own sacrifice. And so Paul continues in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then you might be wondering, well, how does Jesus dying on a cross help us? We know that the just penalty for our sins is death, but Jesus came to die in our place. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions, speaking of Christ. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Ephesians 1.7 puts it this way, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. But how could the death of one man on a cross pay the price for all of humanity's sin? Well, that would be a good question if Jesus was only a man. But that's why we read in Philippians 2, that's why what we read in Philippians 2 is so important. It tells us that Jesus is not just a mere man, but Jesus is God. He is God who took on flesh on our behalf. And so what this tells us is that only a man could die for the sins of humanity. And so Jesus fulfills that as a man. But only an eternal God could pay the eternal price of sin. And Jesus also fulfills that because he was 100% God as well as 100% man. John puts it this way in 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is a funny word, propitiation. It's a fancy word, but what it talks about is an aversion of wrath, a satisfaction. And so we put it into this verse, what it's telling us is when Jesus went to the cross, he went on our behalf, and the wrath of God that should have went to us, was propitiated, was satisfied in Christ instead. And through that process, we then are made right before God. That's the short version of what propitiation means. And so the next question we might ask would be, well, why? Why would God take such drastic measures to save humanity? Especially after we just read chapter 1 and we're so desperate and we're so lost and we're such sinners and we're such enemies of God. He had every right to pronounce judgment upon humanity. Why would he go through these measures to bring us to himself? And so we go to maybe the most famous verse of all the Bible. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his own son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, 8. But God shows or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Why would Jesus die on our behalf? The answer is found in the title of this chapter. We are loved. Despite our sin, despite our faults and our failures, our mistakes and our excuses, our insecurities and even our doubts, God loves us. Don't ask me to explain it. I don't know if I would love all of you people, but God does. He makes it explicitly clear all throughout the Bible from beginning to end, you are loved by the creator of the universe, the one who breathes life into you, who sustains your very existence at this moment. You are loved. Have you ever wondered if you mattered in this world? Have you ever wondered if God would hear you if you called out to him? Have you ever wondered if God truly loves you? Scripture makes it clear. He has proved his love for you. He has proved his love for me through his sacrifice on the cross. First John 3.16 tells us this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so going back to the beginning of the story, we see that God created the world so that we could be with him, so that we might know him and live in relationship with him, so that we might experience his love firsthand. And yes, sin severed the relationship with God. But because he loves us, because he desires a relationship with us, he made a way for us to be saved, for that relationship to be restored. And so this is why our doctrinal statement continues. The fall of man into sin has resulted in separation from God. The remedy to man's sin has been accomplished through the finished work of Christ. And here we come to the end of chapter 2 with a much more hopeful outlook. We have seen that our desperate need for a Savior has been met through the finished work of Christ, which demonstrated God's love towards us. But in this story, there's an odd note right here at the end of chapter 2. And it says that we can't continue the story without first making a Decision. How will you respond to God's love? If we want to put it in terms of salvation, we go to Acts chapter 16 and the Philippian jailer asks it in a more simplistic way. What must I do to be saved? This short question, there are two significant truths. What must I do to be saved? God's love demands a response. And God's love can only be received on his terms. 
And so we see in 1 Timothy 2 that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But also, Jesus says in Matthew 7, that we are to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This tells us that not everyone will be saved. And when we realize that not everyone will be saved, we realize that we must respond personally to God's call of salvation. And more specifically, there is only one way to positively respond to God. Acts 4.12 makes it clear. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name, speaking of Jesus, under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. The only appropriate way to respond to God's love outside of outright rejection is to receive His gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus. The only way. So how then? How do I receive the salvation? And Paul's answer to the Philippian jailer was simple. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As we explore this concept of belief in Scripture, we see that Paul is not just talking about some sort of intellectual understanding or acceptance of a fact. But in reality, it's an act of trust what we call faith. And this trust works itself out through acknowledgement of our desperate need for Him. Understanding that we cannot save ourselves through repentance and confession of sin, trusting what Christ has done for us, all followed by a commitment to live for Him. This is the Gospel message. That salvation is a free gift from God. And it must be received by faith. And so it's, this is why our, our statement of, on salvation ends this way. The fall of man into sin has resulted in his separation from God. Chapter 1. The remedy to man's sin has been accomplished through the finished work of Christ. That's chapter 2. And must be personally received as a gift by faith. That's your ticket into chapter 3. How do I receive this gift? We've already mentioned it. I'll give you a couple of verses just to be sure. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Only if we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, Are we ready to turn the page to chapter 3? Because otherwise the rest of the story doesn't apply to you. The rest of the story won't make sense. We recognize our desperate need for our Savior. We see and understand God's message of love towards us through His Son. We accept that gift by faith. And so we turn the page. We arrive at chapter 3. And we are There are several important aspects to salvation that 
we should understand and, and be ready to explain. We've already talked about a few of these, so I'll move quickly through them. But just to give you one more important verse, salvation is a gift. It is not something you earn. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is not something you can accomplish. It's not something you can earn. It is something that has been given to us as a gift of grace. This does not neglect our responsibility to repent and believe, but it is not something that we can claim credit for. We also learn that salvation involves regeneration. I say that in another way, that salvation involves a supernatural rebirth. We best understand this by looking at the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious man, goes to Jesus. He wants to know more. He doesn't ask the question in the same way, but what he wants to know is, how can I be saved? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born Again, what Jesus is telling us is that being saved is not really about us. It's about what God does in us. And we can't do it ourselves. We're reliant on the Spirit to do the work in our heart to draw us to the Father who gives us the faith by grace that we need to respond. This spiritual rebirth is good news. Because as Paul puts it, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The desperately lost is gone. The perfectly righteous has come through the gift of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. Through the cross, not only are our sins paid for, but the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. And what that means is when we're saved, we're not all of a sudden made righteous. No, we still have our own issues and problems. But when we're saved, the righteousness of Christ is imputed. It's put on us. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our own righteousness, which is a good thing because we don't have it. But instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's good news for you and me. Legally, we have been declared righteous on the finished work of Christ. This is what we call justification. Romans 5, 18 and 19 puts it pretty simply. Consequently, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness, Jesus, was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And so we are declared righteous. But even beyond the gift of salvation, a supernatural rebirth, justification, declared righteous, we're also adopted into God's family. And there's multiple passages here that speak to this concept of we are brought in, we are adopted by God into His family. 
Romans 8 describes this process of adoption enabled by the Spirit. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When we are saved, the Spirit is imparted to us, making us a member of God's family. And that brings us to the end of chapter 3, what it means to be saved. But there is still one more chapter to go. Where do I go from here? Because you see, salvation is not just a truth to be understood, but a reality to be lived. Our walk with Christ doesn't end at the moment of salvation. There's more to come. So I'll say what I need to say carefully, but if you, if you know me at all, you know that I take theology seriously. I have a master's degree in theological studies. I've gone back to school. I'm currently enrolled trying to finish my uh, master's of divinity. I take theology seriously. And the reason is because I agree with Tozer that says what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. That being said, having all the right theology without allowing the theology to shape the way we think and live just leads to an empty faith or worse, no faith at all. This is why the story doesn't end at the moment of salvation. It doesn't end at chapter 3. We turn to our last chapter, chapter 4. Because not only are we saved, but we are transformed. You see, the purpose of salvation is not just a ticket of heaven. Please, we're not just sitting here waiting around to the end of time where Jesus just takes us home. That's bad theology of salvation. John seventeen eighteen, Jesus says in a prayer to his Father, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them, his disciples, his followers, believers, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I concentrate myself. Why? So that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says, I have sent my followers, all those who have been saved, on a mission. And a mission begins with a big fancy word we call sanctification. We've been made right with God legally through justification, but now in sanctification we have been called to walk in our new standing as Christians, being made to look more and more like Jesus each and every day. Thankfully, this again is not up to us. It's the Spirit of God working in us. And we have the assurance of the Spirit in us that He who began a good work in you, that's God, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul urges, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, if we were to try to describe the process of sanctification, we'd be here till next week. It's another sermon. It's another sermon series. We're not going to hit it there, but this is the highlights of what I see, sanctification and how it works out in our daily lives. It is worked through the Spirit. It is enabled by the Word. It is something that we ought to pursue diligently. It is perfected by God. It produces our obedience 
it gives us hope. It shifts our perspective. And it results, again, in our perfection. This is the full picture of salvation. That we were desperately lost, but we have been rescued by Christ who loves us deeply. And so in response to our rescue, as we look to Him in faith, we are now enabled to live lives set apart. That's really what sanctified means. Set apart for Him, for Christ. It should transform our thinking, our behavior. Everything about us is transformed by the Spirit in us. There's one more aspect of our transformation that cannot go ignored. Salvation transforms our relationships. I mean this in at least two ways, although there's more. First, when we're saved, we're not only adopted into God's family, but we are also welcomed into the church family. That's what unites us to one another. And so we're going to talk about the church over the next week or two, and as it relates to here at Chapel of the Lake, and so I'm not going to spend time on it here. But what I want to say, and we should all understand, as it relates to salvation, it's salvation, it's this gospel story that unites the church, that unites the big C church all around the globe, and it ought to be the number one primary thing that we have to focus on, that we all should be able to rally around and unite on this story of salvation. The gospel is what unites you and I in our local body of believers. But it also transforms our relationship with the world. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Paul describes it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see, we now are the ambassadors of this story. We were desperate, but we're loved. Now we're saved, and you can be too. This is the message of reconciliation. So the last question for this morning, how? How do we share this message? There's a thousand different ways, and I want to give you one, one suggestion that maybe you could lean into this week. Take this gospel story, this four-chapter gospel story, and make it your story. Chapter 1, share about your need before you met Christ. Chapter 2, talk about, share how you first heard about God's love. Was it a parent? Was it a neighbor? Was it a Sunday school teacher? Was it a sermon? How did you hear of God's love. Share, chapter 3, how you came to faith, place your faith in Christ. And then chapter 4, share how your life has been transformed by Christ. This is my challenge for you this week. Take these four chapters. Try to boil down your story to four or five sentences using this outline. For example, Because here's the deal. My guess is that your unbelieving neighbor does not want to listen to me preach about salvation for 45 minutes. 
They don't know me. They know you. And probably more interesting to them than a theological treatise on salvation is to hear your story and to hear how you met the Savior of the world who loves you and to hear how that truth has transformed your life and how they too are in desperate need but are loved by God can know that they are saved and can experience life transformation through the blood of Christ. What would it look like if we boiled down our story to 60 seconds, four sentences? I think you'd find that we'd be ready when the opportunity presents itself. So maybe if you're online and you're part of our Facebook group, maybe you want to get online and, and share your four-sentence story. Why don't we encourage each other this week? Call someone up say, hey, can I practice my four- or five-sentence thing for you? It takes 60 seconds. I want a little talk that I can, when someone asks a question, I need a way to share the gospel. Here's the way to share the gospel. Because the gospel story ought to be my story and it ought to be your story. If Jesus Christ has changed you, you have a story. And so let's know that story, let's understand that story, and let's share that story. Will you pray with me? Dear we're thankful that this story begins with you. It begins with you, it ends with you, everywhere in between, it's about you. Lord, help us relish in that truth. It's a good thing we can't earn our salvation because we would fail. Lord, we're thankful for your grace today. Your spirit who has drawn us to yourself, who has convicted us of our sins, who has fixed our eyes on you. Lord, I pray for those listening at home or maybe in this room that that can't quite turn the page to chapter 3 who are unstuck on the question on what do I do with Jesus? How do I respond? May they see their desperate need for you this morning. May they feel your love this morning. May you draw them in these moments to yourself. May you let them walk out of this place, turning the page to chapter 3 where they walk out of here saying, I am saved. And they can spend the rest of their life learning what it means to be transformed by you. Lord, for those of us that have been a Christian maybe for a little while now, I pray that you, you don't let us forget the wonder and marvel of your story. That you would allow it to continue to transform us. And that we would be a light to a world that is desperate and hurting all around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.